Well, it's a delight, isn't it, to be together, uh, to hear God's word uh, publicly read and uh, heard uh, in faith. Uh, the scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 8, uh, verses 14 to 25. So I invite uh, your hearing with joy and faith the public reading of God's word. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hand, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours. And pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, as you know, one of the great themes of uh, the book of Acts is the continuity of uh, the ministry uh, that's occurring, uh, continuity with the, uh, the apostles, continuity with Christ. Uh, and uh, it's uh, vitally important that we recognize that we be a part of that continuity. Uh, now, some of you might say, well, Phil, that kind of goes without saying. I don't really get the point there. Well, the point is, uh, if you think about the American Christian landscape, there's really not much continuity at all. Uh, certainly, uh, the moment you vacate the Reformed community at the church, uh, many people hold to a social gospel. Well, that's not in continuity with the apostolic ministry. Uh, Many people hold to no gospel at all. It's really not important. We're all going to heaven, except for maybe, I don't know, Pol Pot or Adolf Hitler, so we don't really need to have a continuity of the apostles. I mean, those matters are rampant uh, in our land today. Uh, Everything's about, uh, let's make the gospel generic. Uh, But we studied the book of Acts to see that there is a decisive continuity And here there's a decisive continuity in word and spirit, but there's also something more radical in the continuity of word and spirit, gospel, and and that is the continuity with heaven. Uh, And that makes it all the more radical. Uh, And so the apostles uh, uh, here, Peter and John, ensure continuity in word and spirit, uh, but they do something radical. They expel discontinuity. Uh, So it's radically important. You say, well, it's not important, but it is radically important. And it's so important to Peter and John that they're going to expel in a radical way discontinuity. 
So, in, in the gospel and our continuity with uh, the apostles and uh, Jesus, uh, the incarnate Son of God, we protect the gospel, which protects the church. Well, contextually, the word has advanced, as you know, geographically into Samaria by Philip. There's a revival. Uh, let's look at uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Uh, very quickly, it's important to re-look at this text, preaching the good news that God saves sinners. Uh, he doesn't save everyone, but he does save his people. He will save them. None of them will be lost. That's good news because it means that in Christ we can escape judgment. Uh, very important good news. Uh, I think of the day in which we live. Uh, I love Psalm 91. That the psalmist has protection from the arrows that fly by day and the pestilence that stalks at midnight. What a great reminder. Uh, everywhere in our country, we're stalked by fear. People are terrified. And I understand there's a place for being afraid of a, a medical emergency. Uh, but the psalmist, of course, finds his comfort because he dwells under the shadow of the Most High. He finds his safety in Jesus Christ. And there is the good news that even when terror stalks the land, the church is a haven of safety. Uh, in fact, in an earthly sense, it's the only real haven of safety whatsoever. Uh, I mean, I understand people are going to get sick and uh, thousands upon thousands have died. Uh, and certainly Christians are numbered among those, but their souls are forever safe. Now that, my friends, is good news. Compelling news, reason to come to Christ, to come to the gospel. Uh, notice uh, the good news about the kingdom of God. The Messiah has come. He's reigning. He's advancing his kingdom. And now it's advanced into Samaria. Nothing, nothing can stop it. Even the incredible prejudice between Jew and Gentile, Jews living in Jerusalem, and Samaritans separate. Incredible prejudice, unlike even we've not known in our own country such intense prejudice. That cannot stop the kingdom of God because of King Messiah. In the name of Jesus Christ, everything that he is, everything that he's accomplished in terms of substitutionary atonement, uh, giving his life the one for the many, uh, the gospel. Uh, and so, uh, in Jerusalem, they receive a report from Samaria. It's a figure of speech, really a synecdoche for the people of Samaria, that they had received the word. The radical event of the advance of the gospel. And this, this event, by the way, will repeat itself in terms of continuity, so important to trace in terms of the Gentiles. Let's look at... Uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brethren uh, who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Continuity. From Jerusalem to Samaria and Judea and now to the Gentiles. Continual stream, linkage with the eternal purposes of God. And salvation once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, same verb received and same direct 
uh, object. Uh, they'd received the word. And so Peter and John, two of the apostles, of course, uh, are dispatched. Uh, specifically, I think, to ensure continuity with the Spirit. Uh, because the Spirit is not yet evident. So they're concerned about that, and so they dispatch the apostles to go to find out what is going on. And so they pray, and the Samaritans, the text reads, were receiving the Holy Spirit. This is very uh, interesting. Uh, the text is silent about the presumed display. It says nothing. Uh, let's look at the uh, book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 9, uh, just to make a connection uh, with the theology of the, of the New Testament. Uh, continuity in terms of the Spirit, because there's continuity between the work of the Son and the Spirit, and of course the Father. No, dust, no discontinuity whatsoever. Uh, but uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Uh, However, you're not all in the flesh. Uh, in other words, you've come to Christ, and the dominion of the flesh has been broken. But you're in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Again, an implied warning. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. In other words, every Christian has the Spirit. Uh, they're born again by the power of the Spirit. They believe in Christ, the Spirit comes to dwell. Uh, their very uh, aspect of the new birth is caused by the Spirit of God. So every Christian has the Spirit. Now I understand there are many denominations uh, in Protestantism that uh, hold to a second work of grace, uh, a higher life, uh, maybe manifested by speaking in tongues. I mean, I don't know. It goes on and on. But uh, there is no discontinuity in the work of the, of the Son and the Spirit. You're a Christian, you have the Spirit. Uh, and by the way, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You lack nothing in Christ. That's the power of the gospel. It's the essence of the gospel. Every spiritual blessing. I speculate, and again, purely my speculation, that in God's providence, he wants the apostles to see the Samaritan Pentecost. They've seen the Pentecost at Jerusalem, and he wants the apostles to see the Pentecost in Samaria due to its significance in light of the prevailing prejudice between Jew and Samaritans. And they see it, and they know it's genuine. They know it's a true work of God. And the Spirit makes it clear to the apostles that this is genuine. Genuine. That there's a continuity between Word and Spirit. No difference, no distinction. Uh, sometimes, of course, we are slow to grasp this. Great examples in our country. We're slow to, slow to really get this. To understand that there's no ethnicity any longer. Uh, there's no Jew or Gentile. There's no uh, slave or free. We're all one in Christ. There's no distinction whatsoever in terms of the work of the Trinity or the Scriptures. Uh, I love, of course, a uh, very familiar text, Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. Uh, Jesus, uh, by his blood, purchased men and women from, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He didn't purchase everybody, and that's the importance of the prepositional phrase. He 
purchased men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Uh, and so it's universal uh, as to distinction. And that's why the church should be a display of all ethnicities. Genders. I don't, I don't like that term. To me, it's a grammatical term. But nonetheless, it's well received in our country. I think you know what it means. There are, there are no distinctions. Uh, now, there are distinctions in the scriptures respecting gifts. We don't all have certain gifts. But not in terms of salvation. That's the point. There's no con discontinuity there. Uh, and so, uh, I, I'm sure the Apostle John and Peter had to have smiled and just been reminded that, yes, Messiah is reigning. The gospel is advancing. We're on the winning side. If you're not a Christian, compelling reason to sue for peace, to come to Christ, ask the Spirit, give you a new heart. Uh, but then something radical happens uh, in, in this uh, narrative, and that is that there's discontinuity. Uh, and so there is an internal threat that immediately uh, surfaces in a discontinuity of the gospel. I mean, we've seen this previously, Ananias and Sapphira. What happens to them, by the way? Expelled immediately and radically from the church. And a parallel event's going to occur here because there's a discontinuity. And in the scriptures, there can be no discontinuity. It's one of the signs of great danger, of incredible danger in the church. Uh, if the church is doing something today that is uh, uh, not in alignment with the consistency of Scripture, something is radically wrong, and something is radically wrong here. Uh, and so the church, uh, in terms of its representation of Peter and John, invalidate the discontinuity of the conversion of Simon the magician. Verses 18 to 25. Invalidated. Representing heaven. And that's the continuity that's so radical. Uh, it's not just word and spirit, it's also heaven. Ostensibly, as you know, uh, Simon the magician believed and was baptized. Look at uh, verse 13a of uh, Acts chapter 8, and even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. So what do we do? Well, we give him assurance of eternal salvation. We put him on the rolls of the church, and uh, uh, he's forever there. Uh, well, Peter doesn't do that, does he? very important to recognize that just because there's a visible expression doesn't mean that invisibly the Spirit has worked, a genuine new birth. And that's really the question. It's not as there is a profession of faith. Uh, is there a genuine faith that's going to manifest itself in genuine expression of the gospel? And that's where Simon fails. Uh, and so the implicit issue is the genuineness of a confession. A uh, number of reminders of this. I mean, it's kind of everywhere in Scripture. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, Therefore bring forth fruit, keeping in repentance. That's a, a warning to every professing Christian. Uh, I mean, it's something 
prevailing in the church today that, well, I mean, once saved, always saved. Well, I, I believe that if Christ saved you. But if the church saved you, then you might want to stop and think. If you saved yourself, you might want to stop and think. Scriptures are saying bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And you and I know from the theology of the book of Acts that repentance is a gift from God. Only God can work it truly as it's evidenced and manifest truly and genuinely in the life of the Christian. Matthew chapter 7, verse 8, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. I mean, I, I truly believe that everyone that Christ saves remains saved forever. But he also dispatches the Spirit to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. It becomes manifest in the life of the church. A great text of John chapter 15 uh, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Uh, you are part of the gospel tree. You're abiding in Christ. You're going to bear forth uh, fruit. And that's where Simon fails, isn't it? When Simon views the Samaritan Pentecost, verses 18 and 19, he offers the apostles money. And at that point, Peter exposes him as a fraud. Let's reread the text just to make sure we catch the violence of it. Acts chapter 8 and verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter for your heart is not right before God. He expels him from the church with this pronouncement. You cannot buy the gift of the grace of God. It's a great reminder of the Protestant Reformation. Roman Catholic Church going throughout Germany selling indulgences. You can't buy your way into heaven. It's not for sale. The moment you put a price on it, you cheapen it. Even if you make it a trillion dollars, you've cheapened it. You cannot cheapen the blood of Christ. It only comes as a gift. It only can be received by faith alone. And so Simon uh, is is expelled in a radical way because of his discontinuity with the gospel. Uh, Peter rejects him and expels him for presuming that the grace of God is for sale. And Peter commands him to repent and to pray for forgiveness because he's in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of unrighteousness. Uh, two displays. The first is a description, the gall of bitterness. It's an illusion you turn in your Old Testaments to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18. Peter knows his Old Testament, so he brings it into the New. Uh, let's read the text. Lest there be any among you, a man or a woman or family or tribe, whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and to serve the gods of those nations. Lest there shall be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. In other words, by his confession, Simon gives us evidence that he's not part of the gospel tree, if you will. He's bearing poisonous fruit. And you eat of the fruit of this tree, you'll die. You never live. Never came to genuine faith. Now, I believe the use of the Old Testament here is analogical and highlights the danger of idolatry uh, into the church. I believe Simon was an idolater. Uh, I believe uh, the Samaritans, before 
uh, being rescued in the power of the preaching of the word, uh, were idolatrous and claiming the great power of God in terms of his tricks at magic. It's idolatry. Uh, much of our culture is idolatrous. Uh, by the way, that applies to the church. Uh, very powerful reminder of idolatry from John the Apostle, 1 John 5.21. He writes this extended, uh, extended to me epistle in terms of the marks of genuine faith, what the gospel produces. And then he closes out his, his epistle with little children, guard your hearts from idolatry. It's the first time idolatry has ever been mentioned in 1 John 5. What does he mean? John is telling us that any departure from the fruits of genuine Christian life as contained in his first epistle is idolatry. It's a false gospel. It's an errant view of Christ. And that, my friend, ladies and gentlemen, is pure and simple idolatry. And I think it's Sad to say, present in many, many churches because they vacated historic orthodoxy and the genuineness, the continuity between word and gospel and spirit. So they worship a false god, a false gospel. They become a poisonous tree and everyone who eats of it is poisoned. Uh, and that's why Peter, by alluding to Deuteronomy, is, is uh, giving a genuine expression of the danger of idolatry in the life of the church. Secondly, in Christ, the bondage of idolatry is broken. It's broken. It's what happens with many of the Samaritans. The power of the magic of Simon's idolatry was broken. They received the word. They come to faith. And they receive the Spirit of God. The genuineness of the continuity with word, the apostles, the spirit, with Jesus, and something else, heaven itself. The illustration of this uh, beautifully in the words of the apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, verses 8, 9, and 10. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have uh, no need to say anything. Uh, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They turned from idols to God. Of course, you and I know the Spirit of God turned them. <laughs> Only the Spirit of God can turn the heart. Uh, but uh, the Thessalonians are giving evidence that their faith is genuine. They receive the word from the apostles. They turn from idolatry to serve the living and the true God. And they, and they do something else, verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Beautiful expression of the gospel and the continuity of the church. Waiting for the son uh, to perfect the gospel uh, in uh, his coming resurrected body. So Thessalonians, 
but not Simon. Not evident in Simon, so he's rejected and expelled. I mean, we, we illustrate this in the church today in continuity with heaven, uh, in church discipline. Uh, we're, we're, in effect, expelling people from the community. And in doing that, we're representing heaven because of our continuity with the gospel. We, we do that implicitly in fencing the Lord's table. If you're a Christian living in known sin for which you're unrepentant, you should not partake. We fence the table for genuine faith. And of course, only the Spirit of God can work in the heart to manifest those things. But it's just not something we willy-nilly do. Is it no big deal just drinking a little juice and eating a cracker? It's a very big deal because of who's present by the Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are in continuity like the apostles. And so the church uh, expresses that continuity. Uh, we represent the gospel as well. And it's the gospel that protects the church from a poisonous fruit. This engages the reality that true conversion perseveres over time and in degree by the grace of God in the sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's also a reminder that the true church is an expression of the decrees of heaven. We'll think in those terms, but we should think in those terms. We represent heaven. Let's look at some text. Turn with me in New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses 17 to 19. Uh, the context is, is uh, Jesus says, uh, whom do you say that I am? And as you know, Peter says, thou art the Christ, thou art the Messiah. Promised from the Old Testament. That's who you are, you're the Messiah, and you're the Son of the living God. In other words, he's God incarnate, God himself. Come to earth, breaking into a sin-drenched world with the great news that the reign of God has begun in Messiah. Jesus answered, verse 17, Matthew chapter 16. Blessed are you, Simon Barjonas, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father was in heaven. In other words, the Father revealed it to Peter. He didn't learn it because he was astute in his understanding of the Old Testament. You can't gain learning that way. It's a, it's a place to start, but it's a powerful, radical, spiritual event, and God revealed to him the truth. Had God not revealed it, he wouldn't have made the confession. Very telling point. And now notice verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overpower it. Context again is Peter and his theology. The gospel, verse 16. You're Messiah. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Constitutes a uh, essential element of the gospel that we must be in continuity with uh, to protect the church. And Peter's confession is that protection. And Christ tells Peter, I'll build my church on this. And that's what he does. He's going to build his church on Peter's confession. Not on Peter, but upon the confession. I mean, Peter may be implicitly there in a very minor sense. 
Uh, but certainly not in the sense, say, for example, the Roman Catholic Church. It's the confession. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Christ is going to build his church. Notice, notice I will build my church. See, we, you and I don't build the church. He does. We're, just, we're his agents. And as his agents, we must be in continuity with word and gospel and spirit. The parallel to I will build my church is I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The binding and loosing in this text speak to salvation and judgment. Peter is the immediate recipient, but the parallel in John 20 has the entire apostolic company. So it's not just Peter. That's why I think the Roman Catholic Church is in manifest error here. It's the entire apostolic company as the recipient. And the keys are symbolic of the sovereignty of Christ. For example, the book of the Revelation, he has the keys to death and hell. And the church represents that in the gospel. Whenever the gospel is violated, people are bound, they're rejected. Uh, and whenever uh, uh, the gospel is accepted, uh, they're bound in salvation. That's the point of the text importance of the gospel. Uh, and the reference to heaven means that the decrees of God have an outworking, have an outworking in the church in accepting or rejecting men like Simon Magus based upon Peter's confession of, of uh, Matthew 16, verse 16, and Christ is the builder of the church. You violate the gospel, you violate the word, you violate the spirit, you're expelled from the church. It's the point of Simon Magnus. Text does not have the church dispensing grace. It's very important. We don't dispense grace. The Spirit of God does that. Christ does that. It's a sovereign act of Jesus Christ. I do not dispense the grace of God. I may be an agent of it in the preaching, but I don't dispense it. That's a divine act. Totally improper for the Roman Catholic Church to subsume that. And again, this text is totally silent on succession and sacerdotalism. Sacerdotalism meaning that the grace of God is in, in the sacraments. My friend, there's nothing in the sacraments you vacate faith, nothing at all. And certainly, uh, we... We don't hold to five additional sacraments. And even if you want to make it major sacraments and minor sacraments, as some Protestant churches do, I, frankly, I reject that. Verse 2, received in historic orthodoxy. But there's no grace inherent uh, in the sacraments as a naked event. By faith, by faith, by faith. You apprehend the benefits of the new covenant and baptism and uh, the reality of the benefits and the Lord's table. Uh, another illustration, turn in your New Testaments of the church representing heaven. Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 18 to 20. Truly I say to you that whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on the earth shall have been loosed in heaven. 
Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything and that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Uh, the context here, as you know, is church discipline. It's not prayer in general. It's church discipline. It's a point of wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name. You might make an application to that, but it's an improper interpretation. It's church discipline. When the church agrees that the protocol and continuity has been violated, it's very significant because it represents what? Heaven itself. In continuity. So the context is church discipline and a protocol for dealing with sin and, of course, uh, the importance of the protocol in restoration. Whatever the church binds or looses, forbids or permits, in administering the protocol shall have been bound or loosed in heaven. It's a radical view of the church. By, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, it's a very high view of the church. We don't have a high view of the church in America today in a general sense. I'll go if I have time. I'll go if I can fit it in. Furthermore, I don't really need to go at all. I had a guy involved in a very prominent Christian ministry say, well, my father doesn't need to go to church. <laughs> you know, no big deal. Really? Really? Discontinuity. The earthly proceedings imitate the judiciary of heaven. And again, heaven is not ratifying the judicial event. We're acknowledging that we are in continuity with heaven in the event. What is done on earth is a reflection of the decretive will of God in heaven and our continuity with the gospel. And continuity with the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, protects the church. You play with that, you'll destroy the church. You'll build a poisonous tree. The point of the rejection and the expelling of Simon Magus. The church represents heaven's work of offering restoration in the gospel. And the church acknowledges and affirms that what God has done in Christ, we acknowledge what God has done in Christ in saving his people and the gospel, and that he restores them as they repent and renew their gospel vows. It's an expression of genuine faith. The church also rejects those who reject the gospel. It's a powerful event. You know why? Because it represents heaven. Uh, by and large, de facto, ladies and gentlemen, the Protestant church does not do church discipline. We just let it go. People can come and go as they please, live a life however they wish. That's their own private affair. Well, Peter is introducing to us, Matthew is introducing to us, Jesus is introducing to us a very high view of the church. In the word and gospel, there is continuity with heaven. There is agreement on earth, God will make it happen, and the presence of Christ is promised. I understand it's very unsettling to have church discipline. I once had a very godly woman said, Phil, you can't do that. People will get upset. I said, I said, Mom, I gotta represent heaven. 
I'm bound to represent heaven. Well, she got it. But that's the continuity of the church. You can't just willy-nilly blow it off. Let people come and go as they please, live however they want. That's Simon Magus. He's expelled from the church by the apostles. That's uh, a great, great reminder of the importance of the church. Uh, John chapter 20, continuity with heaven. Uh, John chapter 20, the context to me is uh, a parallel view of the Great Commission uh, upon the apostles. Uh, this is a post-resurrection uh, event uh, of Jesus Christ in the life of the apostles. Uh, John chapter 20, I'm going to read uh, verses 21 to 23. Uh, Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. There's the Great Commission. Great Commission to the church. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And now notice the continuity with heaven. Spirit continuity. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. Radical event. The continuity of the apostles, uh, ultimately the life of the church with heaven itself. The text is an allusion to Ezekiel 37 uh, in a broad context, but certainly verses 5 and 9. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I'll cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. Uh, in the Greek text, the breath and the spirit are the same word, pneuma. He's going to cause breath. A, as you know, the context is the vision of the valley of dry bones. Immediately a promise about restoration, but ultimately it's the coming of the Spirit to give life to his people. Ezekiel 37, 9, Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may come to life. That's what's happened, ladies and gentlemen, in Acts chapter 2. Here. Samaritan Pentecost, Spirit of God entering the church, uh, the dry bones coming to life. Now, by the way, let's review the gospel. Dry bones, can dry bones live? Can people who know not Jesus Christ come to the gospel? Well, I mean, they can't. They can try. Simon Magus tried, but he flunks. Point is, it's a spiritual event by the power of the Spirit of the living God. You vacate Him, nothing happens. It's a reminder that you and I every day are totally, utterly dependent upon the work of the Spirit of God. He gives us life in Christ. We're born again, John 3. But every day, we're desperate to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, and we might walk in newness of life, bringing forth fruit of genuine repentance. Uh, the greater fulfillment of the typologies in the church as the new Israel. 
in the Word and Gospel, the church offers forgiveness. An absent Word and Gospel, forgiveness is withheld. You vacate the Gospel, there's no forgiveness. It's what's happened to Simon Magus. He's not in continuity with Word or Spirit or Heaven. Uh, and you and I must be in continuity with those radical elements because we represent heaven and the gospel. In word and gospel, the church is an expression of heaven. Heaven's voice is heard and seed in the church. That's why we give attention to biblical exposition. It's the voice of God himself captured in the word of God, expounded upon the word of God. We represent heaven. In our case, Peter acknowledges that Simon's confession is false. These are very strong words, but so are idolatry and a perversion of the gospel. So Peter, of course, displays that he understands his role in rejecting Simon as representing, pardon me, as a representative of heaven. I question, I trouble over whether the church at large in America does that. But that's not really my, my concern. It's my concern is that we do it here. That we do it here. Continuity in Holy Spirit, in Word, with the apostles, Christ the Messiah as the representatives of heaven. And if that chain is broken, there must be uh, an expelling because we represent heaven. And that duty and responsibility falls immediately to the elders. Uh, but again, of course, in discipline by way of illustration, it falls to the church at large. That's why uh, Matthew says, wherever two or three of you are gathered together and you agree, you're representing heaven. It shall be done for you. And the Spirit of Christ will be with you. Great promise. It's a point of the continuity. And Peter displays that he understands his role in rejecting Simon as the representative of heaven. And he and John continue the representation. Very powerful way. Let's go back to uh, original context of uh, Acts chapter 8 and, uh, and look at verse 25. They've come from Jerusalem. They see what's been going on. They remark on continuity. They engage in discontinuity and they reject it. And so when they had solemnly testified, verse 25, and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages in the Samaritans because they represent heaven. And that's what they're about. Great reminder. The role of our church. Who we are. What we're to do. What we're to be. Uh, and so we imitate or we mimic heaven's view of word and gospel and spirit and we retain or expel it based upon word and gospel. Not in some office, not in some keys, but in word and gospel. And continuity protects the gospel. And secondarily, it protects the church. It protects the church and the life of the church. 
and it expels poisonous trees because of what they stand for. And so, ladies and gentlemen, true faith displays continuity. Word, baptism, repentant spirit. Simon does not. His discontinuity is rejected and expelled as a warning. Also as a promise of the gospel and all that it represents in forgiveness and heaven itself and the joy of the gospel and the joy of coming to a personal faith in Jesus Christ.